standing. Um, we wanted to do um, a special prayer together as a congregation amidst all the violence that's happening in and around our country and has been for years. Um, so I'd like to also invite you, I think, one of the things we can do is pray together. I think one of the ways we pray together is by holding hands. So I'd like to invite you to hold a hand next to your neighbor if you feel comfortable. If you need to move around, that's okay too. Um, for first part of the prayer, I'll pray it. And then the second part is a responsive reading that I'll invite you into. I read this week about this generation of school students being the mass shooting generation. Some of us remember Columbine. More of us must, might remember Sandy Hook and Justice Munn Stillman Douglas High. There's been Las Vegas and Orlando. There have been churches like in Charleston and Sutherland Springs, movie theaters, college campuses, workplaces, homes, and even recently we've had threats to Harrisburg, York, and Cedar Cliff. We don't just have a generation of school students, but a country that is plagued by violence and death. It is in this darkness and despair that we look to the light and hope that is in Christ Jesus. In our weakness, may we call upon the strength of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit in his people, the church. As we live in these difficult times and amidst these tragedies, I'm reminded by the words of a prophet of old who once said, let us not tire of preaching love. It is the force that will overcome the world. Let us not tire of preaching love. Though we see the waves of violence succeed in drowning out the fire of Christian love, love must win out. It is the only thing that can. This morning we have united in worship and praise, thoughts and prayers, song and soon the hearing of the word. But now let us pray together. Please join me in this responsive part of our prayer this morning. I will read the regular print and you're invited to read the italics. Father God, you're the source of life. Every person is made in your image. Every life is filled with your breath. We ask for you to keep teaching us the sacredness of all life. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world. In our darkness, please shine through. In our despair, please be our hope. Holy Spirit, you draw us back to God and you build us into one body. Bless us, Lord, with unity and a bond of peace. Father God, wash away our sorrow in your waves of mercy. Give us strength to fear no evil, for you are with us, and you will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord Jesus, you're the resurrection and the life. Lord, only you can make all things new. Lord, only you can bring life where we only know death. Holy Spirit, lead us in the way of the Father. Show us the truth of the gospel and teach us how to make the kingdom come and God's will to be done. Father God, help us to abide in you. Help us to love as you loved and help us to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, you were never alone. You were full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit. You were not of this world, and you stood with your Father who sent you. Holy Spirit, remind us that we are never alone. Fill us up, Holy Spirit, and lead us through the wilderness, the fires, and the stormy seas. Stand with us as we stand with our Father who has sent us to our world. And Lord, we thank you for children and teenagers. We pray that they will continue to grow up trusting you, God, and may you grow them in love, grace, mercy, and compassion. Lord, help us to beat our weapons into plowshares. Help us to overcome evil with good, just as you taught us. Amen.
Good morning, church. I just want to share a very brief testimony that Pastor Woody had asked me to share. Last fall, in one of our informal evenings of prayer here at the church, led by Pastor Woody, uh, there was a group of about 40 to 50 people, and we were sitting and enjoying the presence of the Lord and listening for him to speak to us in quiet prayer. And as I was sitting here near the front and I opened my eyes, I, I, I suddenly saw in my, my mind's eye a picture. I looked at the front of the sanctuary and the Holy Spirit showed me a great waterfall that began to come from the ceiling down to the floor. It began and it was not like a leak we have here. I mean, it was, it was really a waterfall almost like Niagara Falls. No, not quite, but anyway, it began to pour down, and it began, first of all, here in the middle of the church, and then it began to slowly spread. Uh, it, was almost, it seemed like it was making its way to the doors. And as I watched, I found myself standing outside, in my, in my mind's eye, I saw that I was standing outside the church, and water was beginning to pour out at the entrances of the church. Doors here, doors wherever. Water began to, to flow out. And as I finished sharing that, uh, Tim Johnson immediately um, read from John 4, which says, as Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water that I, Jesus, give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I sensed in my spirit that day that God was going to at some point pour out of his Holy Spirit in a powerful way to our congregation. I don't think there's anyone who is who, who would, would not receive um, if their hearts are pure. As the Lord, as the Holy Spirit comes in a powerful way, we don't know when, but we're trusting the Lord that this is just, uh, uh, just a, a, a really a tiny, tiny taste of what is to come. Uh, I just sensed that his, he was going to pour out his spirit at some point, uh, and through the congregation, no exception of anyone who will receive. No exception, none. Everyone can receive of his Holy Spirit, and then I felt the Lord was going to then let it flow out beyond the borders, out beyond the borders of just our church, that we were going to then be vessels through which he can use and flow through in our neighborhoods, in our stores, wherever we are. I believe the Lord wants to move through this house, as Pastor Woody and others have been saying. It was just another example that I felt the Lord gave to me anyway of his wanting to come, anoint and prepare our hearts for the future and for what he wants to do through this house and outside our doors, in our neighborhoods, in our city. And he will do that to every life who is really open and responsible and willing to receive of what the Lord wants to do. When Anna Peachy talks, I listen. <laughs> she and Mary Lou are the prayer warriors of this church. 
I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. <laughs> so, today I'm continuing in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that, that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come to my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. All through chapter 7 and the start of chapter 8, Jesus is in a running argument with the Jewish leaders. The main topic of the argument is Jesus himself. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he good or evil? Is he full of the Spirit or is he demon-possessed? Is he who he claims to be or is he the ultimate blasphemer? But in the scripture we read today, Jesus turns the tables. He starts to tell his opponents who they are. Jesus begins diagnosing their hearts. Jesus tells his opponents, if you knew who I am, if you knew the truth I bring, it would set you free, free in a way you've never been set free. To which the Jewish leaders respond, we are free. We have never been slaves of anyone. How can you set us free? And of course, I, that takes a little reconstructionist history for the leaders of Israel to say they'd never been slaves to anyone. I think the Babylonians might disagree when they conquered Israel and hauled them off in exile and enslaved them. I think the Assyrians would say the same thing. I think the Greeks under Alexander the Great could, could uh, argue with that. And now the Romans had conquered Israel and, and, and oppressed Israel. Jews thought that since they kept their faith, no matter where they were and no matter what had happened to them, that they were never truly conquered. And there's some truth to that. But this gets us back to the real nature of freedom, especially in 21st America, whose ultimate value in this country seems to be freedom. It's very important to understand biblical freedom from the freedom we talk about today. Most people think freedom means the freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it, and nobody can tell me what to do. Such thinking 
has led to the sexual revolution in our country, to the drug epidemic in our country, to the acceleration of divorce in our country. But that definition of freedom usually just leads to more bondage. The true definition of biblical freedom is the ability to be all that God created you to be. And in order to be all that God created you to be, you must enter the process of becoming free. And that process begins with the truth. Because Jesus said, only the truth can set you free. Freedom starts with the truth about God, about us, about the meaning of life, about what is real and what isn't real. And if you don't know the truth, you're just wandering around in the dark. Without the truth, you will believe any kind of lie. You will fall any, into any kind of trap that Satan sets for you. The devil runs this world, and he runs it with lies. That's his main weapon. And if the devil can get you to believe lies, you can end up almost anywhere. If you don't know the truth, you'll fall for anything. Unfortunately, too many Christians can't discern what's true and what is illusion. A ton of Christians are just so biblically illiterate, they're, they're just not up on the truth. They're not on, up on what the Bible says is good and what is evil. What is cultural and what is scriptural. A lot of folks don't know the difference between American culture and biblical values. Please hear this. Satan can make anything look good. Anything. He can make anything look fun. He can make anything look cool. He can make bondage look like freedom. But everything he offers is wrapped in a lie and ends up in some form of slavery. After Jesus proclaimed how they were... Uh, they were free, they come back at him, and Jesus delivers a bombshell. He says, you're not free at all. You are slaves to sin, and you and yours have always been slaves to sin. By the way, that's not just limited to the Jewish audience 2,000 years ago. Without Christ, we are all slaves to some manifestation of sin. We were all born with a cancer in our souls. All of us were born addicted to sin in some form. And that sin, unless it is checked, will grow. Everyone here has to fight some form of our fallen nature. It might be lust. It might be anger. It might be greed. It might be envy. It might be control. It might be pride. But no one escapes the pull of sin in their lives. No one. Some expressions of sin control all, controls all of us if we are not yet open to the truth and a power greater than ourselves. People sin. It's in all the papers. Have you noticed? People sin even when there's no rational reason to sin. Even when there's no gain in it, people sin. <laughs> this past week, I was shocked to find out that a Russian athlete was expelled from the Olympics for using a performance-enhancing drug. I, that, the part that a Russian was expelled from, the, it, that's not shocking. They get expelled all the time. But the sport he was using his performance-enhancing drug for was shocking. Why would somebody use a performance-enhancing drug? And what for? He used it for the sport of curling. Have you ever seen curling? 
That is where you roll a stone slowly down a bowling alley covered with ice to a target at the end. And as it gets closer to the target, there are two people with brooms who start going like this. When I was a kid sweeping the kitchen floor, I never dreamed I was a future Olympian. (laughs) My question is, if you are in the sport of curling, what in the world do you need a performance-enhancing drug for? That's like taking steroids to play a game of checkers. That's nuts. What's next? 75-year-old Granny Smith being expelled from the Pillsbury cook-off because she took human growth hormone while preparing an apple pie? You don't need performance-enhancing drugs for curling. By the way, we won the Olympic gold medal for curling. Nobody shoves a rock down an alley like we do. (laughs) People are sinners. And the problem with that truth is that sin destroys us. It wages war against our soul. Sin breaks our awareness or our need for God. And without God, human beings inevitably disintegrate. By the way, sin is not just the wrong we do. It is also the good we don't do. It is the, humans we, it is the human need we walk right past. It is the stuff we don't share when we could. It, it is, you know, the, the pain that we look at and walk away from. But the problem gets worse, Jesus says. We, on top of having cancer in our soul, refuse to admit we have cancer in our soul. In today's text, Jesus repeatedly tells the Jewish leaders, you don't want to hear the truth. You have no room for it. You are in denial. Your ears are stopped up. Our sinful nature fights to protect itself. And one of the ways it protects itself is it blinds us. It fights the truth about what our real condition is. One area of blindness might be what sociologists call self-serving bias. For instance, most of us in most areas rate ourselves above average. For instance, if I took a poll in this room, the big majority of people in this room would say they are above average drivers. That's the statistics on it. And what's really interesting is they even did this survey. They went into hospitals with people who had been driving a car in an accident and had been ticketed, and they still said they're above average drivers. Only 2% of uh, college professors rate themselves as below average as professors. 63% say they are above average professors, and 25% or one out of four say they are truly exceptional professors. By the way, I surveyed some pastors, and because we are so humble, we all rated ourselves as below average because our humility is above average. In 1954, 12% of all Americans said they were, quote, a very important person, unquote. In 1989, they took the same survey, and it jumped from 12% of people saying that to 80% of people saying that. 80% of us say we're, we're, we're really important. And, and who knows? I, I, you know, that was 1989. I'm sure it's well above 90% now. David Brooks writes, we have seen a shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. 
from a culture that encouraged people to think humbly about themselves to a culture that has encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. And another way, by the way, we, we uh, rationalize our sin is that it's called uh, what sociologists call the fundamental attribution error. In other words, we attribute our failures to external causes. The way that comes out is, it wasn't my fault. Anybody in my situation would have done that. And the other side of that is we see other people's failures as evidence of a flaw in their character. In other words, my sin is excusable. Your sin isn't. That is one way we keep running from the truth about ourselves. In other words, we pretend to be better than what we are, and we judge other people at the same time. We lie. And the real trouble starts not just that we lie, but when we begin to believe our own lies. That's denial. Jesus continually confronted the Pharisees about their pretense. He said, you're white tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're rotting away. Jimmy Moore tells a story about a woman who was to bake a cake for the church lady's bake sale, but she forgot to do it until the last minute. Alice was her name. She baked a cake, but when she took it out of the oven, the center dropped flat. That cake looked like a volcano. It was too late to bake another cake. So she looked around the house for something that she could put into the middle of the volcano. She found it in the bathroom. It was a roll of toilet paper. She plunked it in and put some cardboard over it and covered it with beautiful icing. The finished product looked elegant, so she rushed it to the church for the cake sale. Alice then gave her daughter some money and asked her to be at the bake sale the moment the doors opened and buy that cake and bring it home straight. But her daughter, being, you know, not really time-oriented, arrived late at the bake sale, and the cake had already been sold. Alice was beside herself. A couple of days later, Alice was invited to a friend's home for a party. It was a pretty fancy soiree. And after the main entree was done, suddenly the cake in question came into the room. When Alice saw the cake, she started to get out of her chair to rush into the kitchen to tell her hostess all about it. But before she could get to her feet to warn the hostess, one of the other ladies said, What a beautiful cake! To which the hostess replied, Thank you, I made it myself. At this point, Alice sat back down in her chair <laughs> to see what would happen. Besides that, it's impolite to call your hostess a liar in front of everybody. You can imagine what happened next. People wondering why their hostess had served them a toilet paper cake and wondering why, you know, was the hostess multitasking? Eat the cake now? Take the toilet paper home for later? Or was this a new health craze? A cake with incredibly high fiber content? I wish I knew the end of this story. I'm sure it just turned out peachy. But it leads us to the question, what's in the center of you? 
What's at the core of who you are? What is really inside that nice, creamy exterior that we show to everybody? What's your toilet paper? I bet you thought you'd never hear that from the pulpit. <laughs> are you willing to face what you need to face with Christ's help? I think I need to pull that paper back. <laughs> Our capacity for self-deception knows no bounds. But when we don't face the truth, guess what? If you don't face cancer, what's cancer going to do? It's going to keep on growing. If you don't fix a warp, what's going to happen? Something's going to get more warped. Our souls get more warped. And tissue paper, you know, it absorbs and grows. We need God because healing starts when we become aware of the truth, that the truth about us is that we don't know the truth about us. That's why the Bible says, it says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can figure out even their own heart? We need God. Denial has to be broken. And the only true guide through this process is God's Word, the Holy Spirit, and Christ-filled friends, and sometimes, occasionally, a counselor. Because only Christ can help us without, on the one extreme, shaming us and beating us to a pulp, or the other extreme, excusing evil and pretending it's not there. When we judge ourselves, we keep rotating between those two extremes. We either beat ourselves up or let ourselves off, and neither is helpful. Jesus is the healer. Healer begins, healing begins when we, our desire to face the truth is greater than our desire to avoid the pain of facing the truth. It's not easy. Richard Rohr writes, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned people until you get to any real issues like ego, control, power, money, pleasure, security, then Christians tend to be pretty much like everybody else. Let us not be like everybody else. Jesus, at the end of his analysis, really upsets the Jewish leaders who had been chasing him. As a matter of fact, they take a cheap shot at him. You know, they're, 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 they're talking about, well, I'll get to that in a second. But he told them, you can't hear my message. You can't hear it. Your ears are plugged up. You don't want to hear it. And really, you can't hear my message because you have a different father. This is the original, who's your daddy? And Jesus said, I know who your daddy is. Your father is the devil. And the reason I know is because you are thinking and acting just like your daddy. You want, just like Satan, to kill me. He was a murderer from the beginning. You reject the truth, just like your daddy, the father of all lies. He was a liar from the beginning. Liar, lying is his native tongue. You say Abraham is your father. And by the way, when they, when they got to this part, they took a cheap shot at Jesus. They said, we're not illegitimate. You realize what they're saying? They were throwing back at Jesus the rumors that he was illegitimate that Mary got pregnant before she ever married Joseph, and they're going, we're not illegitimate like you. Imagine that, church people gossiping. It's unheard of. 
And he said, Abraham didn't act or think like you. Folks, sometimes in this secular age, we forget who we are up against. We forget sometimes that the ultimate solution is not politics. We forget sometimes the ultimate solution is not economics. We forget that some, sometimes the ultimate solution is not what you watch on television. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers in high places, and they control an awful lot. There's real evil in this world that goes beyond rational explanation. In their book, The Criminal Personality, Stanton Samenow and Samuel Yockelson described their careful study of 250 career criminals. When they began, somehow when Yoakum held a, com a conventional view that criminals are victims of abuse and deprivation. That was the going view. They were looking for the social, psychological, and economical uh, factors that could, said, could be said to cause crime. And to their surprise, they found no common thread as to why people become career criminals. Think about it. Some say poverty breeds crime. Yet the huge majority of poor people never even think about committing crimes. They say that an abusive and distant father created Hitler. I've got news for you. Millions of people have had abusive and distant fathers, and they didn't start World War II and kill six million Jews. A mentally ill man killed 17 students in Parkland High School this week. Yet there are millions of mentally ill people who would never think of doing what that 19-year-old kid did. The vast majority of people struggling with mental illness are not a danger to anyone. Evil cannot be put on a chart and predicted. You just can't do it. There is a liar and a murderer who gets people to listen to him and do his bidding. There is evil that has infiltrated the world both individually and systemically. Are there things we should do practically? Of course. That's why I joined Heeding God's Call to change people's attitudes and some of the crazy laws that let stuff like Parkland happen. But hear this, and I like, you know, I, when Ron Sider wrote his book about full Christianity, we had not better not try to take on evil without prayer. Powers and principalities do not give up territory without a fight, and without God fighting with us and for us, we are already spiritually outgunned from the start. If we take on evil, we had better understand what we're up against. Because Satan and his flunkies will come after us if he feels threatened by us. Only Christ's power can win certain battles, and we had better tap into that power. At the start of this section, it says many believed in Jesus. Many became his disciples and accepted his invitation to freedom. The heart of Jesus' message was that as slaves of sin, we were helpless to free ourselves. There is only one way to God, only one way to defeat sin, only one way to take out the cancer, Jesus told them. And it was a person, not a book on religion or the law. It was him. Jesus' message was himself and what he had come to do. That's what all the argument with the Jewish leaders was about. He said things that upset them, like, I am the living bread. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. 
He was the Father's heart revealed, and many believed, but many got angry. The key to salvation, Jesus taught, was to believe in him. And belief meant more than simply knowing Jesus in a theological or abstract way. Probably the best thing, definition of believing in Jesus is the way Jesus invited the, his disciples to follow him back then. Follow me. Follow me. The heart of discipleship in those days meant walking and talking and giving one's life to their rabbi. And if we follow him, Jesus said, we will go from being a slave to being a part of the family. We will be treated as sons and daughters, and it will all be pure gift. The heart of believing is not achieving, but receiving. Receiving forgiveness, receiving grace, receiving love without having to earn it or get our act together first. In fact, without God's help, we cannot get our act together first. We're doomed if that is one of the conditions for salvation. Slaves to sin cannot defeat their own sin. The flesh cannot defeat its own self. It takes someone stronger than us to break sin's hold. And so Christ's invitation then and now is come as you are. All you who are weary and burdened and broken, stressed out and scared to death, come as you are. John Stott wrote, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Our job is to take what Jesus is giving us freely this morning. I know it seems too good to be true, but when it comes to our salvation, we earn nothing. Our heart merits nothing. We can do nothing. The good, and the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to jump through hoops so Jesus will love us. We don't have to try to do the impossible, which will depress us and exhaust us. Of all the things we must earn in life, and we have to earn a lot of things in life, God's love and grace are not one of them. And so the invitation today is still the same. Come as you are. It's so hard for some of us to accept Christ's invitation to come as we are. It's so hard to believe that God loves us, period. That he loves us because he made us in his image and because he wanted someone that could, he could love. And he sees what one day we will become as we are loved for eternity by him. He knows us totally, loves us without reservation. His grace is without end. Come as you are. Receive freely what is given freely. There is nothing but love and the truth that will set you free in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you, for you, it's not easy. You've been beaten up all your life. You've even been beaten up by bad religion. You've been beaten up by Christians and churches. Steve Brown said, my family and I once took a, in a German shepherd, Calvin, who had been beaten horribly by his previous owner. The dog was okay with my wife and daughters, but was always frightened of me. Evidently, he had been abused by a male owner. When I would come into the house, Calvin would run and hide. If I raised my voice about anything, Calvin felt that it was directed at him and would cower. I did everything I knew to win Calvin's friendship. I never punished him. I never struck him. I always gave him a treat. I talked to him lovingly. 
It took months to gain that dog's trust. I would be reading the paper in the evening, and I would feel a nudge at my elbow. I would turn around, and Calvin, once he saw that Steve saw him, would flee to the other side of the room after nudging him in the elbow. And Steve would compliment him and go back to reading his paper, but before long, he would feel another nudge at his elbow. And then he'd he'd turn, and once Calvin saw him looking at him, he would flee. But this time, not so far. Over an extended period of time, he came closer until finally he said, I was able to pet him and scratch him behind his ears without fear being the predominant trait of the relationship. That dog lived in fear because it did not understand it had a new master. It saw itself as a slave of its old master, subject to any kind of arbitrary treatment. What it didn't realize and took and it took time to realize, was that the new master saw that dog as a member of its family, not something to kick around. He only wanted for that dog to receive his love and give it back. And he gave that dog the time he needed to realize it. The dog would come, nudge, run, nudge, run. But but he came more frequently and ran further away less. And the master, Steve, was smart about it. He forced nothing. I know of a number of Christians who are saved, and they are in God's house, but they still are afraid of the master. They go, "I, I signed on the dotted line to go to heaven, but Jesus, please keep your distance. I don't know what you'll do. And here's the invitation this morning. If you can't come boldly into Christ's presence like we're invited to do, can you maybe just come quietly up and nudge him on the elbow? If you can't believe that God's grace is fully for you, can you at least stay in the house and when the master walks by, not run away? If you're afraid, then pray your fear and see what the master will do with it. If you're angry, pray your anger and see what the master will do with it. Do this until God's love can have a chance to reach you and heal you and change you. Come as you are. There is nothing but love and grace and the truth that sets you free waiting on you. Come as you are. If some of us grab that truth, it would do nothing less than revolutionize our lives. Jesus said that if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, and you can move his heart. I don't care if that faith is surrounded by doubt and fear and anger. What Jesus sees is the mustard seed and how big it can grow. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to open yourself to the master as far as you can and believe and believe. Even if it's only for 30 seconds and then you have to run away, believe for that 30 seconds.
Lord Jesus. Some are dancing in your presence in their spirit right now. And some are cowering in the corner. Lord, help us to take just one step closer. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves for just a moment, even if it scares us to death. Heal us, Lord Jesus. Some of us have been so beaten up. Heal us. Let us walk in the truth that sets us free. Let's walk, let us walk in the belief, Lord, that breaks sin's power. Help us, Lord Jesus, in this moment to believe, even if it's for just a tiny bit, help us believe and open ourselves up to new possibilities. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. We are going to uh, worship the Lord here. But again, if you need prayer for anything, the altar is open. If you're doing, you know, business with God through the Spirit, you can just stay where you are or you can come forward. But let us, let us worship the Lord today.